Last Sunday, we began a new series. Um, How is the faith to be passed on to another generation? And I don't think that I explained last week, but part of what triggered this in my thinking is the work that I was doing in the Philippines, working with pastors there, and as they are training the next generation of leaders. um, The question came up, how, how am I, as the pastor of the church on Melrose, how are we, as part of this body, to pass the gospel on to the next generation. And as I said last week, with the babies in our midst, this is not a rhetorical question. With the struggles that the church faces in this present generation, things that were touched on in the sermons while we were away, about love and justice and sound doctrine, this is not an abstract question. And with the seemingly growing hostility to the Christian faith, this is an important question. We will anchor this series in Paul's letters to his son, his dear son Timothy, in 1st and 2nd Timothy. It was not physically or biologically his son, but he refers to him time and time again in the New Testament as his son. So here in this first letter to Timothy, here is Paul writing to someone who is dear to him. He tells the Corinthians, this is Timothy, my son, whom I love. Very much language of the baptism of Jesus. And yet, as we saw last week, Paul just sort of jumps right in. There's no thanksgiving, uh, there's no intimacies, there's, there's, it's just, let's just cut to the chase and let's talk about what I want to talk about. So if you look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1, as I urged, and this is the beginning of the letter, he's already done the greeting and all that in the first two verses, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. By the way, Mike Greenholt uh, commented last Sunday after the sermon that he found it interesting that I was gone for four Sundays and had different men of the church speak, and then when I get back, my first sermon is about false teachers. Um, I had not made that connection. It was certainly not my intention. Rather, what I was seeking to do, and this came to me while I was in the Philippines and and thinking through this, is how, in fact, do we pass the gospel on to the next generation? And we see the first principle, as in my opinion, is that we need to understand that the church, the body of Christ, those who are called by God, may, in fact, have in our midst, among our members, those who behave badly and those who believe wrongly. At this point in the letter, Paul is dealing with wrong belief, but later in the letter, he will deal with bad behavior, both of which mark false teaching and false teachers. And we saw this in our study of Second Peter. See, the church is made up of imperfect people, and we need to tell the next generation that. I think many seem never to have been told that. When we were younger, somehow the vision we had was we were the good guys and they were the bad guys. It was the church versus the world. And... At some point, a crisis may have taken hold in different lives when either they saw bad people in the church or they saw good people in the world. And they're like, wait a minute, I thought I thought we were the good guys and they were the bad guys. And why are there good people out there and and not so nice people sometimes in the church? Many, I think, have gone through a crisis experience. One might even say a wilderness experience when they have wandered away from the faith, at least from the church, because This just doesn't seem to make sense to them. 
And I can't help but wonder if they could have avoided this, if it could have been avoided, if someone had said to them, listen, you as the one who will be the next generation of the church, you need to understand that we are not perfect. We are imperfect people. And the time may come when you'll say, where is so-and-so? They used to be a part of this congregation and they no longer are. Or you may say, uh, so-and-so is living a kind of life that is not very Christian. What's up with that? We need to understand that the church is made up of people who are sinners, who are saved by God's grace. And we need to understand that it is not made up of perfect people. One might wonder, though, won't this make them paranoid or suspicious? That they're always looking out to see who's going to make a mistake or who's going to do something they shouldn't do. Not necessarily. If, in fact, we have a sense that the church is made up of imperfect people and that imperfect people are capable of behaving badly and believing wrongly, then we see that there's a reason that we need to stay in the congregation because we need to keep each other accountable and straight. That is to say, if someone begins to behave in a way that is not Christian, that we would say, listen, this is not right. Or if they begin to believe something that is wrong, we would say, listen, this is not right. That's why we're not just individuals uh, with a relationship with God. We are, in fact, to be a body, the body of Christ together. So Paul, as we saw in the first verse, who is an apostle by the command of God, starts off by telling Timothy that he should command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. Unless we think that this is some type of control issue, that Paul is a control freak and wants to tell everyone what to believe or what to do. Um, look at verse number five. In verse number three, he said, command these men. Verse number five, the goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You see, in the face of these false teachers who are pushing myths and endless genealogies, who are promoting controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith, in the face of false teachers, we may very easily forget the command that we are to love one another. Jesus was asked, Teacher, which is, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Oftentimes, in seeking to fight false teaching, we, in fact, may lapse into a state in which there is no Christian love. I remember Francis Schaeffer saying years ago, that if you could imagine uh, false teaching as a fire-breathing dragon that is trying to devour you and you're backing up and you're backing up, he said, you need to be careful because behind you is another fire-breathing dragon. And I would say that fire-breathing dragon is the absence of love. That we're so busy standing for the truth against falseness that we forget, in fact, that we are supposed to love one another. We might well wonder, what is the nature of the love being commanded? Well, this is something I think that Ben touched on in his sermon. What are the actions of this love that is commanded? James touched on that in his sermon. 
I think Paul deals neither with the nature of the love or the actions of the love, but the source of the love. If you look at verse number five, it is to come from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is in contrast to the teachers who are deceived and deceitful. We'll see in chapter four. They have seared consciences. And as we will see at the end of our chapter today, they have shipwrecked their faith. As the command to love is the command that Paul gives uh, to Timothy, we should examine it closely. What does he mean when it says that love is to come from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith? Well, the idea of a pure heart is very Old Testament, if you wish. The language comes to us from different parts. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Or in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. But what is a pure heart? Aren't we all sinners after all? Just said that we are imperfect. What is a pure heart? Let's go on to the second thing, a good conscience. This is the capacity or the seat for moral consciousness. It is common to all people. Paul wrote in Romans, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Rather we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting the faith, uh, setting the, uh, forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So the conscience is the place where we know what is right and what is wrong. But the conscience on its own can be dangerous. And so in Paul's writing to Timothy, he gives us a sense that our conscience can be either purified by the grace of God, or as we will see in chapter 4, it can be seared. You can, you can burn it with heat to the point that it, it feels nothing. It becomes almost insensate. It, it feels nothing because it has been seared. So I think what Paul intends by a pure heart and a good conscience are one and the same thing. It is a heart that is being purified. It is a conscience that is being purified by the grace of God. I hope that this will become clear as we go through this first letter. And then the third thing is a sincere faith. This is somewhat puzzling, almost troubling. In Romans 12, uh, verse 9, Paul wrote about, he said, love must be sincere. And to talk about love being sincere and a sincere faith almost seems to be pointless. I mean, either you have faith or you don't. Either you have love or you don't. To speak of that which is sincere faith, well, either you have faith or you don't. I think what Paul is speaking of is the Christian virtue of faithfulness. That we are to be faithful to God. We are to trust in God. There is faith that is to really be there and not to be something that is artificial. It is not to be deceptive, what we find in the false teachers. So these are the sources of Christian love. Pure heart, a good conscience, sincere faith. But now we come to verse number six. And we read that some have wandered away from these and, re- and turned to meaningless talk. If we could add a corollary to the first principle of how we are to pass the gospel on to the next generation, we should say that some wander away 
from love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience and sincere faith. That is to say, it is not a conscious choice as such, where people say, I'm going to leave the Christian faith. There are those who do that, and he will talk about that in verse 19. But here he talks about those who simply wander away. It's not a conscious rejection of the gospel. It isn't something they've thought through. It is simply through carelessness that they have wandered away. And by the way, I don't think you have to leave the church to wander away from love. As I said, when we are so busy fighting against false teaching, in the process we might forget, oh yes, oh, I forgot. I'm supposed to love my neighbors myself. I'm supposed to love my enemies. I'm supposed to pray for those who persecute me. Somehow we forget that in the process of wander away from these things. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Paul says about the false teachers in verse 7 that they want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they confidently affirm. And then he digresses, and I mentioned this, I talked about this briefly last week. Um, Paul deals with this in more detail in his letter to the Galatians, which we've studied, uh, just go over it briefly. What is the purpose of the law? Why then did God give the law? Well, as we saw in Galatians, as Paul writes the story, it is a series of stories. And the story begins with the promise, the promise that is made to Abraham. And that promise is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, in between that promise being given and the promise being fulfilled, another another story comes in. And that is the story of the law. Unfortunately, some of the people during Paul's day and perhaps even in our day, they forget that the promise came before the law. They see the law as coming before Jesus, and so the law has some sense of ascendancy over who Jesus is. No, the first story is that of the promise. And intervening, or in between, is this story of the law. And as Paul tells them that the purpose of the law was given because it was to spell out to us what sin is. It is to tell us of transgressions. Sin is to break the law. But if you have no law, can you have sin? Well, Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 6. To transgress, to commit a transgression, is to breach, is to break something, is to be in violation of a commandment. From the time of Adam and Eve, the human race has been in ruins. But there may not have been an awareness of why that is the case. And when the law comes in, then it becomes very clear. This is the problem. This is what God has commanded you to do and not to do. And you have broken these laws. The law is not opposed to the promise of God. God gave the law. He gave the promise. They are not opposed to one another. The law, in fact, had a purpose. It was bringing God's people to the time of fulfillment. Here's the promise. Here's the fulfillment. In between is this law, and it is to carry God's people to fulfillment. But it is not, if you wish, something that would be considered pleasant. The word that Paul uses in Galatians has been mistranslated by various English translations. Um, It means literally a teacher. But then that gives the wrong connotation as someone who teaches 
I would not want Paul to describe me as he describes the law. Because he describes the law as someone who is there to chastise and rebuke. In the ancient world, if you had money, when your son reached a particular age, let's say six years old, and you're busy working, you don't have time to raise your children, you'd go down to the market and you'd buy a slave. And you'd say to the slave, okay, I want you to raise my son. Now, he may or may not teach him how to read and write and things like that. You might buy another slave to do that. But the purpose of the slave was to discipline your son. So, in essence, the slave could spank, could beat your son, could tell your son, this is how you're supposed to act. Because the dad is too busy, the mom is too busy to do those things. You get somebody else to do that. The law had that function to say, this is how you're supposed to act. And if you read the book of Deuteronomy at all, you'll find that the punishments for breaking the law are quite severe. It's like the slave from the market saying, listen, I'm going to smack you upside the head if you do that again. That's not what you're supposed to do. This is the function of the law. If you wish, the law is the nagging person always telling you what you're doing wrong. The slave is not there to praise you, to say, oh, what a good child you are. The slave is there to tell you to stop doing what you're doing and to do something that is right. So if you go back to our passage today and you see the list that Paul gives... Um, look at, let's begin reading in verse 8 we know that the law is good if one uses it properly we also know that the law is not made for the righteous but for lawbreakers and rebels the ungodly and sinful the unholy and irreligious for those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers, for adulterers and perverts for slave tra- traders and liars and perjurers and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine The law is not made for good people. You don't go down and buy a slave if your son already knows how to act. You do it when your son is unruly and you say, I need someone to discipline my son. And so Paul gives us three three pairs, lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious. And then he gives us a list that, if you look at it, matches the fifth through the ninth commandments. Those who kill their fathers or mothers. It's certainly a horrible crime. This is the fifth commandment. You're supposed to honor your father and your mother. For murderers, the sixth commandment, you shall not kill. For adulterers and perverts, the seventh commandment about adultery. For slave traders, the eighth commandment, this deals with stealing. You're actually stealing somebody's life and selling them to another person. And then for liars and perjurers, this is the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness. This is certainly a list of unsavory actors and actions. Then Paul sort of rounds it off, if you wish, by saying whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. And Paul's doing more, much more than simply rounding it off. He's pointing to that which is unsound in contrast to the gospel. So as we seek to pass the gospel on to the next generation... We want to pass something on to them that is healthy, that is sound, not something that is false or unhealthy. By the way, at the end of the book in chapter 6, Paul will talk about the false teachers that they have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels. Well, Paul wants us to have sound doctrine. And then if you look at verse number 11, that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me.
And now we come to what is seen as another digression, but it actually, I would see it as the foundation of what Paul is saying in this chapter. Follow along, if you would, as I read verses 12 through 17. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In verse number 11, Paul speaks of the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Well, it seems natural that he would break out into thanksgiving. And while this section might be seen as a personal testimony, I don't know if you caught it, but either I or me together are used 11 times in these verses. So it seems we might get the wrong idea that it's all about Paul. He's certainly giving his personal testimony, but the emphasis is on the grace of God. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. If you didn't know Paul or anything about him, you might sort of shrug at this statement and say, well, that's nice that Jesus did this for Paul. He gave him the strength. He made him equal to the task. He considered him faithful. He appointed him as an apostle. Okay, let's say it's a big deal. But then Paul goes on to speak of his past. I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. In me, the worst of sinners. And here is not another corollary to the first principle. It is, in fact, the foundation of the first principle. We are the children of God because of God's grace. As we seek to pass the gospel on to the next generation, that would tend to mean that they were raised in a Christian home. And some of us who were raised in Christian homes might have experienced a deep sense of envy because we did not live lives of sin before we became Christians. And at least in some traditions where people stand up and give personal testimonies, we wish that we could give great testimonies about how terrible we were in the past and how God saved us by his grace. Perhaps to even say with Paul, I am the worst of sinners. I can remember my father at a Bible study many years ago answering this specific question. The woman asked because her father was a very famous preacher in the Philippines. She had been raised in a Christian home and she had no, she wishes that she could say, look at what God has done for me. He has saved me from a life of sin. Well, I don't know if you caught this. But in verse number 15, Paul says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Is he engaging in hyperbole? Is he morbidly obsessed with his past? Can he not shake his guilt from the past? I would say no, that's not the issue at all. Did you notice that he uses the present tense? I am, not the past tense I was. 
See, Paul has both an overwhelming sense of his own sinfulness and utter helplessness before God, and the fact of God's grace that's been poured out abundantly on him, and almost in an overwhelming fashion it's been lavished on him, that God has saved him and has accepted him in spite of his sin. For those of us who were raised in Christian homes, may not have lived lives of great sin, we need to be reminded that we are still the recipients of God's overwhelming grace. In fact, I have known, more than I care to remember, of believers who in fact have felt the need to go out and live a life of depravity and then come back to the church to say, look, God has forgiven me of my sins. Whether you are raised in a Christian home or if you were, like Paul, a blasphemer and a violent man, in both cases it is the grace of God that saves you. The church is made up of imperfect people who are saved by the grace of God. And that should fill our hearts with praise. If you look at verse number 17, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We should say to our children, you need not live a life of sin in order to receive the grace of God. I think one of the things that Paul experienced that, by God's grace, we might, is that as he grew in his Christian faith, as he grew closer to God, who is the light, his sinfulness became more and more and more apparent. So Paul isn't like, oh, I'm the worst sinner and somehow trying to, to almost boast about what a bad sinner he is. It is as he comes closer to God, he becomes aware of his own personal sinfulness in a deeper and deeper way. You may have experienced that, that as we come to faith in Christ, we have a sense, yes, I am a sinner, I need to be forgiven. And as time goes on, we're like, okay, I, I, I thought I was a sinner, but I didn't realize I was that bad. And then as we grow even closer to God, we're like, I am a wretch. I think this is what Paul is experiencing. As he comes closer to the light, he sees more clearly his own sinfulness and helplessness and his need of God's grace. And as he describes the gospel here, it is the gospel of grace that God has saved him. So this is the gospel. This is what we are to pass on to the next generation. So, the first principle was that we are the people of God, the body of Christ, and yet we are imperfect. And there may be times when we behave badly or believe wrongly. But there's one more thing, and it's here at the end of the chapter. We should never forget that we can't simply say, oh, yeah, so-and-so believes badly, or so-and-so is acting badly, and leave it at that. It cannot simply be ignored. It must be dealt with. So if you look at verses 18, 19, and 20, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction. Actually, the word is command in Greek. It's the same word that is used earlier. In keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight holding on to faith and a good conscience, some have rejected these. 
and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. In a sense, at the end of the chapter, we come full circle. Paul, who is an apostle by the command of God, began by telling Timothy to command certain men not to teach false doctrines. And now Paul gives Timothy a command himself. That he is to fight the good fight. He is is to hold on to faith and a good conscience. I will leave for a moment, uh, perhaps until next week, the matter of the prophecies regarding Timothy that were once made. But what I want you to see is the contrast between Timothy and the false teachers. Two are mentioned by name, Hymenaeus and Alexander. These men have not carelessly wandered away from the faith. They have rejected these. What are these things that they have rejected? Faith and a good conscience. They have rejected these. They have pulled away. They have turned away. And as a result, they have shipwrecked their faith. And again, this is not simply information for Timothy. This is not merely an affirmation of, of what has happened. They have been put out of the church. They have been excommunicated. As Paul puts it, he has handed them over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. We may not be clear as to what this means, but if we go to 1 Corinthians 5, we see precisely that's what the church in Corinth is to do. This man who is sleeping with his stepmother, he is to be put out of the church. He is to be handed over to Satan. That sounds very intolerant. It sounds very cruel. It doesn't sound very Christian. Until we come to realize that it has a purpose, that they be taught not to blaspheme. The goal is restoration. Someone is put outside the congregation so that they can come to see what is it that I have done? What is it that I am doing? They can repent of their sins and then be brought back into the body. So, in this first chapter of Paul's first letter to Timothy, he sets out what I see as the first principle of passing the gospel on to the next generation. And that is this, that the church, the body of Christ, those who are called by God, made up of imperfect people. And from time to time, there may be among us those who behave badly or believe wrongly. We may not seem to have been told this, some of us raised in Christian homes. Somehow our thinking is it's us versus them. And we get really thrown by the fact that there are those within us who maybe behave badly or believe wrongly. But let's, let's slow down and let's make it even more personal the time may come in our own lives when we behave badly, when we believe wrongly, and we begin to wonder, am I even a Christian? How is this possible? I thought a Christian was a good person who only did good things, and and look, look at what I've done. Usually not carelessly, usually quite deliberately, but look at what I've... How can I be a part... How can I be a Christian? The first principle is that we, the church is made up of imperfect people who behave badly sometimes, who believe wrongly sometimes. And we are not in this alone. It is the body together. So that we can, in fact, encourage one another. We can correct one another and keep one another accountable.
I hesitate to mention this, but it's the example that comes to mind. But there was a, a TV evangelist who some years ago um, announced that he had come to the conclusion that there were actually nine members in the Trinity, in, in the Godhead, that each member of the Trinity was a Trinity himself. And you know, he had a much wider audience than I do. He's on TV. And so he's going around saying there are actually nine members in the Godhead. Each, each member of the Trinity has a Trinity within himself. As far as I can tell, nobody called him on this. Nobody said, um, I'm sorry, but that's not biblical. Some years later, he's like, I don't know what I was thinking. I was completely wrong about that. And for that, I thank God that he came to his senses. But the church needs to be there to say, uh, no, that's not right. Or what you're doing is not right. But those who are saying you're doing wrong, or you're believing wrongly, we, if it is us, we cannot lose sight of the fact that we are to love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. We are not the spiritual police running around giving people tickets, telling people what they can and cannot do. We are people who are of the same body who are to love each other and take care of each other. We need to remember that some people, in fact, may carelessly wander from the faith. We may carelessly wander. From, we may be here on Sundays and be wandering from the faith if we have lost sight of the command that we are to love one another. There are those who reject the faith. And that cannot be ignored. That cannot simply, you know, we can't simply say, well, that, that's what they're doing. Something must be done. The foundation of the first principle is that we are the children of God. And we are the children of God because of his overwhelming and ongoing grace. We are not here to comp cons uh, compare past. We're not to say who lived a more wretched life in the past. What we are here to do is to say, God has been gracious to me in an overwhelming way. And when we come together, it is to praise and thanks God, thank God and give thanksgiving for what he has done in our lives. And I think it begins with love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Let's pray together. Father, we know that we're not perfect. And yet somehow, perhaps within a religious context or a church context, a church meeting, we lose sight of that. And for standing up for what is right, we lose sight of our own sinfulness. We forget that not only were you gracious to us in the past when you saved us, you still are. And not in small ways, but in overwhelming ways, with your abundant grace, you are taking care of us. Sometimes in standing up for your truth, we lose sight of your command to love. And through carelessness, we may drift into error ourselves, either in our behavior or in our beliefs.
I thank you that we are not individual Christians alone. We are the body of Christ. We are to love one another. We are to encourage one another and, if necessary, correct one another. But the first commandment is to love, that we are to love you, we are to love one another. I think sometimes in our enthusiasm to stand for what is right, for the gospel, somewhere in the process we cease to love you and we cease to love our neighbors. How tragic that is. We are imperfect people saved by your perfect grace. And you've called us to love you, to love our neighbors. By your grace, may we pass this on to the next generation. But may we not forget it in the meantime as we're still here. This is the calling of your people. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you, that you called us to this place. We ask that your grace and your spirit would go with us as we leave. We pray for those that are traveling, for Rianne, for Joy, for Stephen and others. You would give them safety. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for not abandoning us, but keeping us by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.